what I think, and the way I now approach directing, and I hope I now approach management, is that my job is to step back and to see what somebody needs to hear to unlock them. You know, and I think that's true with pupils in a classroom as well. What is the thing that's standing in this person's way of becoming their even bigger and bolder self? Welcome to the Bailiwick Express podcast. My name is Matt Fallays. The Express team will be joined each week by a guest for a series of podcasts. Each will shine a light on topics from across the Bailiwick. The format will change week to week. We'll have debates, reviews, hot seat interviews and special guests. So stick with us as we discuss some of the most important topics we in the Bailiwick face. Danielle Harford Fox recently took over as principal of the Ladies College. Born in England, her journey to Guernsey was via the United States, Kenya and Oxford University. She has a psychology degree and for a time worked as a theatre director. Danielle previously worked in a co-educational school, but she is a passionate advocate for single-sex secondary education. In the latest Bailiwick Express podcast, I spoke to Danielle about her background, her views on education and her ambitions for the Ladies' College. Um, so thank you, Danielle, for doing this podcast with us. Um, first of all, Ladies' College has recently had an inspection report, mm-hmm. which uh, I think we described at Express fairly, I think, as a glowing report. Um, first of all, can you just uh, give us a summary of, of what the inspectors found? Yes, thanks, Matt. I think... It was a glowing report, I have to say, I have to be honest, and it's great because I can praise it without any kind of uh, false humility because it had nothing to do with me, um, but it genuinely was. I think I've seen a lot of ISI inspection reports, and if I'm honest, a lot of schools are rated excellent, but when you actually read this report, I mean, if it was something that described the work that I'd done, I'd be incredibly proud. I think it's not just that the academics were fantastic, it's that they talked about you know, the, the pupils being incredibly curious and having huge initiative and being problem solvers and putting kindness at the heart of what they did and being confident decision makers. And it's, it's just everything I would want for the young women that we're taking care of. And that is consistent with the kind of picture that you have built in your own mind of, of the school since you've arrived, is it? I think it is. I think there was a, there was a moment when I, I came early, actually. I came for International Women's Day to give a talk. And there was just one moment that really struck me. Um, so the, the students had done, there's been some amazing music, there's been some amazing public speaking. But then one student got up to thank me. And what struck me was that she had no notes. She was totally assured. She leant on the lectern like it was her room. And she just said, well, I thought that was really interesting. I don't know what everyone else thought. And it was just this authentic assurance that spoke to me about a culture where individuality is really recognised and where the girls genuinely feel like their voices have value is and them as individuals have value and I thought that was fantastic. Do you think that's quite if not rare at least unusual in education? I mean I it is unusual from my experience you know it's hard to make kind of sweeping generalizations but I you know it wasn't chance that I ended up leading a girls school I've come from really fantastic schools but they are co-educational and I have been open there that I am concerned about particularly how girls change when they're in a co-educational environment. I just see them kind of come in and they are, you know, throwing themselves around and they're muddy and chaotic. And then very quickly they start to take up less space. They start to smile more and say less. 
um, they start to make sure that they're not making mistakes. Like I think in my previous educational experiences, that would have been pre-written. It would have been rehearsed to an inch of its life. They would have been grabbing onto those notes and speaking in a very nice voice, you know? And so that sense of having to perform and having to constantly think about how other people see you, I think it's true for many students, but I've really seen it particularly true for girls. And I think what stands out at ladies is that you just don't see that self-evaluation. You don't see them concerned about how they appear to others. They aren't seeing themselves from outside. I was reading an article um, like a couple of days ago that says that women body monitor every 30 seconds. That every 30 seconds, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about whether my legs are crossed nicely and whether, you know, I've got a double chin. I definitely have. And <laughs> all of those things. And we kind of constantly reflect on ourselves. And that's because we see ourselves through the eyes of the world rather than seeing the world through our eyes and I think what I love at ladies is that their hair is not brushed it is messy and that those girls are loud and they're laughing and they're thoughtful and they're curious but they are individuals sort of fearless individuals and I love it. I'm interested in exploring this because you have made this point um, a few times in various interviews and as you said you you came to ladies college partly because it was a, a an all-girls school yeah. But your experience has been in, in co-ed schools, yes. um, pr- professionally, primarily. So are you you're saying you can see a very real difference in most girls? I mean, the experience is bound to be different girl to girl. But in most girls, you can see a real difference between those in even really strong co-ed schools yes. and those in all-girls schools. So I think there's two things I'd say. So one is anecdotal and one is more evidence-based. So... Anecdotally, I do think there are different types of girls' schools. So I think historically, there were some girls' schools that were I call the cotton wool model of girls' schools, right? That, you know, my mother went to a convent. That, you know, those girls' schools where they were taught to be female. You know what I'm saying? They were taught those roles. They were taught to constrain themselves. And I, and I think that that would probably be worse than co-ed, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, but I do think in the last 20 years that that has not been the direction of travel of most kind of leading girls schools and I, and I don't see it as the direction of travel here and when you look at the evidence um, there was a, a sort of study in 2018 that looked at 314 different metrics around girls in co-ed and single-sex environments and almost all of them they do better in single-sex and that's from their academic performance in English, math, science, it's their choices, it's their feeling of belonging, it's the level of bullying, there are so many indicators and across the UK Consistently, girls perform better in single-sex than co-educational environments. So that's just empirical data on that, really. And so you've now had some some uh, period of time, but a fairly short period of time, mm-hmm. um, in an all-girls school um, as uh, principal of Ladies' College. And what are you sensing on the ground? This this uh, view that um, many girls benefit from a, from an all-girls environment. How um, does that manifest? daily at ladies college do you mean in terms of what the pupils perceive or pe- what, what what the experience for the pupils and yes. how that differs because you're now seeing that firsthand yes i think that um you do see a difference i mean i make a joke about the messy hair but it's an important one you know when i've been in co-educational environments as those girls start to po- uh, approach puberty their hair is straightened their makeup is is as, as much as they can get within the rules you know everything is about appearance and you do see um you see that and you also see a rise in kind of anxiety and perfectionism which i do not see at ladies i mean i've only been there a few weeks but you can measure the hair the hair indicator is very obvious um <laughs> like you can they just are um a bit louder and more vibrant 
than I've seen. And I've, I've worked with amazing girls, you know, I, I don't want to demean the individuals, but I actually had this conversation just before I left uh, my last school, I was sitting at a debating dinner and I was talking to a sick form boy and girl. And I was saying, you know, they were asking me, me why I was going to a single sex school. And I explained that this is what I'd seen at that school. And they both agreed that that is what they had seen too. So I think I just, yeah, I do see the difference already. The counter argument, I suppose, yeah. would be that it cre- creates a, a slightly artificial environment, so that the wider society, yeah. um, you know, ha- girls have to mix with boys. Um, so, how do you respond to that? I mean, do do you think that that is not an issue, or do you have to do things at all, all girls' schools which try to overcome that weakness? I mean, I think. If, if they led their lives entirely cloistered, then I think that that would create some challenges, you know, but that is not the experience of the, of the pupils at my school, you know, that they have, they're doing loads of activities outside of school, they spend all of their time in a co-educational environment, their homes are co-ed, their friends are co-ed, their co-curricular is co-ed, so really what's happening is we're just sectioning off some of their day that isn't that, and that just gives them space away from that gender ro- role, and so, so I think, yeah, so I think that that... So essentially, I think that they're getting the best of both worlds. And I think there is an argument that people make of, oh, you know, the world is co-ed and how will they adapt? But again, the evidence sort of supports that girls that go to single-set schools come out with stronger mental resilience, they're more self-confident, they have higher self-esteem, and that that keeps going post-university. So having that bit of space when you are developing just allows you to figure out who you are before the world tells you who you should be. And I think that that gives them that assurance and groundedness that they take out into the rest of the world. Of course, at sixth form, because of your partnership with Elizabeth College, you are essentially co-ed. Yes. Um, do, do you think that the advantages of single-sex schools for girls have, have largely gone by the time the girls are, are, are in sixth form? Or if you had the size and scale, do you, would you rather maintain the all-girls environment into the sixth form? I mean, I think there are, there are costs and, and benefits of both. I think that actually at the moment it's a really perfect balance. The girls don't think of themselves as being in a co-ed sixth form. That is not how they frame it in their minds. Um, I had I had my meeting with my new head te- girls team and I asked them what they would want to share with the students and one of them spoke passionately about the importance of girls' education. Um, so whilst they are being taught in classes with boys, their social space is still there. You know what I'm saying? They have their whole common room, their friendship groups, their school. And so I think at the moment they feel that, that they still would see themselves as being in a single-sex environment, but having the benefit of mixing it with boys at, at sick form, which they do outside of school anyway, but they get to do even more. And you need to do that for the kind of breadth of, and richness of the curriculum in any event, don't you? Yeah, and I think it's been a long-standing partnership and there's benefits of... You know, there, is, there are always benefits of working with others um, and just having different frames to view things because, you know, we all get set in our ways. We all see things in a particular way. And so it is interesting working. Already I've seen it, you know, that we both learn from having other cultures view what we're doing um, and working collaboratively. And so I think that does bring a really interesting dynamic to Guernsey, I think, you know, that, that shared partnership. So you've, um, you've come into a school which has had a, a, a really outstanding inspection report (laughs) which in one sense must be quite difficult uh, because you're not able to point to weaknesses which have been identified Mm -hmm. by inspectors and and you know bring your staff along with you on any kind of journey of change I mean genuinely does that cause some challenges for you coming into a school which 
which is is in such a strong position, according to the inspector's report. <laughs> you asked this to me before, Matt, when I first met you. And that is, I said, that's an astute question, because it is an astute question. Um, I think, I don't, I genuinely don't feel that way. I um, feel lucky to be walking into a culture that's thriving. I, I think there are enough challenges in education. You know, I don't feel like I have to put my stamp on a school. I think the world is changing so fast for young people that coming into a school that is thriving with a great academic culture is just an amazing jumping off point to face some of the challenges that I see coming down the tracks um, that are nothing to do with ladies or Guernsey, but to do with the fourth industrial revolution and the challenges our young people are facing. So, um, so no, I delight in it really. Um, and, and learn from it. Like it is, you know, it makes my heart sing to see girls being that bold and joyful and, and, that just energises me, I think, and inspires me as we move forward. What do you think, though, that Ladies College could do better? Because no, no school, no organisation is perfect. Sure. Um, it was difficult to find anything, actually, in the inspector's report, uh, which, you could, which you could identify as an area for improvement in mm. so many terms. But there must have been things you have seen which you would like to develop more at Ladies College. Yeah, I think we're having... Um, so, you know, we've already started the conversation... One of the things I said to the staff when I joined is that, you know, when you get a new principal, I think a lot of it, like a bit like um, Doctor Who. So you have to keep your kind of values intact, but you kind of reincarnate for that, the challenges of that time. Um, and I think we are moving into a different time. I think that the work that my predecessor did on well-being was exactly in that moment and absolutely had to happen. And it's really great. And I'm, I'm really, um, you can't take pride in someone else's work, but I am impressed by the work that's been done. Um, but there were new challenges ahead. And you know, so we've talked a lot about where do we want to be? And I think that we want to be innovative and we want to be dynamic and we want to be really equipping our young women to be able to not only navigate, but thrive in the 21st century. And I think, you know, that's already led to some difficult decisions. So for example, and this is a difficult, this was a really hard decision. The day I joined, um, an incredible long serving member of staff who'd been at the school college for 32 years and was genuinely an institution and has done extraordinary work tendered her resignation and she led our Latin department and that was a really difficult moment because it was very soon to meet you know my new tenure very soon hours um, but we really needed to have a conversation of what are we going to do this is quite a lot of curriculum time what do we need to do and how do we need to use that resource to equip our young people and we did think about Latin and there were lots of reasons that went into it but in the end we decided that actually we're going to use that time for skills that we think are fourth industrial revolution so we're putting more computing onto the onto the timetable we're putting um more independent work more, more cross-domain thinking work um and that is a hard decision but you you can't just add you sometimes do have to make strategic decisions to equip young people f with what they need and so that was an example i think of the direction of travel and i think there will be more decisions as we move forward just to make sure that we are orientating ourselves right Okay, we'll talk a little bit more about Ladies College in a moment, but I also want to understand more about you and, and your background. So, Danielle, where were you born? Um, and can you tell us about your the early part of your life? Yes, I mean, I always ask, I find the question of where are you from really hard. Um, my sister studies cultural psychology and she says that this has all messed us up. But um, essentially, I was born near London um, and I spent the first 10 years of my life uh, living near Watford, basically. And then when I was about 10, my parents moved to Texas. So I sort of jumped from, I'd just done the first year, I did my first year of secondary school at um, a convent in St Albans, which was quite 
an experience. Um, and then I moved from there to a junior high in America. And that is exactly like you see on TV. I just like to say <laughs> it's exactly that experience. And I was the weird nerdy English girl. Um, so, so I did a year of junior high and then I did a year of high school. Um, I skipped forward a year in America because I tested out because I wanted to avoid PE. had to admit that to the PE teacher here. Um, so, but I did a year of each of those. And in that experience, I realized that I, this probably says a lot about me as a teenager, I didn't like the American education system. Um, I felt like there wasn't much room for critical thinking and challenge. It was very much, you had six week tests, you learned the stuff. If you learned what the teacher told you, you got hundred percent and then you did the next six weeks test. And I, and I, I hate that. Um, and so um, I applied to um, this boarding school in the UK that I had um, a family connection to, um, which is why it came up. And I was able to get a 100% bursary because my parents didn't have much money. And so I went back to this board girls' boarding school um, on a scholarship and bursary. And I did my GCSEs and A-levels there. So, so I've moved around a lot. Um, and my family still live in Texas, so I still have the all. You know, I have that whole thing going. I do. Um, but, I thought yeah. I recognised yeah. something. So you sort of you critiqued your way out of a secondary system in the United States. Not all teenagers are doing that. Um, and so, how many years then did you do back at, at boarding school? In so I did uh, four England? years. So two years GCSE and two years A level. And then, and again, it, that was a school that absolutely changed my life because. Before that, when I was in America, I was in below average classes. So I was extremely lazy as a child. I genuinely was very lazy. Um, so I was a very lazy child. I was pretty lazy all the way through, really. There was a moment of change, which I can tell you about. But, um, and when I got to that school, because it was a small school, and I just felt seen, um, they just really pushed and challenged me in ways that, and I was very difficult. I look back and think, I don't know if I'd have tolerated my behavior. As a teacher now, I'm not sure I'd have tolerated how I behave. But... I was sort of figuring out myself and I was a natural disruptor and challenger, I suppose. And um, they really uh, had a massive impact on me. And so, you know, I was the first person in my family to go to university and I went to Oxford. And I, you know, um, that was a, a real kind of moment. And I had never even considered that before I'd been in that environment. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a really powerful experience for me. And you read psychology, I think, at Oxford? I did. I did read it. I read it badly, <laughs> to be honest. When we talk well, about Why that. did you choose psychology? So interestingly, so I originally was doing engineering. This is, this, I think, I, I like questions. I like trying to answer unanswered questions. And so I'd originally been doing engineering. And then the summer bef in my, between my lower six and upper six, I had to go and done an engineering course. And actually was like, no, I don't like this. So then I thought, well, I want physics. Engineering answers the questions. I want to ask the questions. So then I did physics and philosophy. I was going to do physics and philosophy. And then I was like, well, actually, and I did apply for some physics and philosophy courses, but I ended up then applying for a philosophy and psychology course at Oxford. Um, and when I got to it, which is what I got in for, actually. And then in the first six weeks, I think I'd imagined that philosophy was mostly me just sitting around and saying what I thought. Transpires it's really hard. <laughs> and I absolutely, I remember, I remember that first few pieces of work on Descartes and I was just like, I, my brain cannot do this. I, this is not how I'm made. And so I ended up on, just by chance on psychology and I loved it. It was the perfect subject for me um, because it, I think that psychology is this extraordinarily young science, which means that you can get to the edges of knowledge really fast. And so then you're asking questions that genuinely haven't been answered. And I think that's exciting. Um, did you consider a career in psychology? I did. I did. I spent my um, summer um, working for uh, a man called Kim Plunkett, actually, between my, between my final two years, um, who 
was on the, some one of the original people that was modeling AI and computer learning. Um, and in terms of children, he was modeling how children learn. And he was at the beginning of saying, this is actually how the brain learns. It isn't learning the way we think about it. It's learning through these kind of neural nets. Um, so I did think about it and I actually was particularly interested in the work um, around autism in that area. Um, but then I, at the same time I formed a theatre company and I was doing a lot of theatre and um, and I decided that that's what I wanted to do. So, so p- perhaps psychology in a way in the end led you into education. But tell us about this detour into theatre direction. Yes. So I've always, I have always loved theatre. It's always probably been a really strong passion. And I love directing and I still love directing um I think I've learned I think when I look at how I lead now some of my most powerful lessons of how you lead and manage people I think I learned as a theatre director when I finished university I um I'd got a piece of advice from um a posh theatre director um on what to do and he said just work with as many theatre directors as you can and see how they work and so I did that for about a year I worked with about 20 different directors as an assistant director um maybe not 20 but a lot I worked with a lot and it was so interesting to watch how terrible we are at communicating. <laughs> like, we are so bad at communicating. And so it was just really interesting to watch that. I could see this vision in the director's head and then that frustration at not being able to communicate that. Um, and so, I, so yeah, so I started doing that and I filmed a theatre company, I started directing productions and I, I just, I, I love it. And what I love about it is, when I originally started directing, I would come to the table with my whole concept of what I wanted that production to be. And I would, and I remember saying this to someone, I now look back with shame, and saying that, you know, basically paint, act as a paint and you just paint with them, which is just incredibly dehumanizing. Um, <laughs> um, and then somewhere in there, I realized that if you approach directing that way, and I believe if you approach management that way, then the best you're ever going to get is for everyone to be as good as you. Um, and what I think, and the way I now approach directing, and I hope I now approach management, is that my job is to step back and to see what somebody needs to hear to unlock them. You know, and I think that's true with pupils in a classroom as well. What is the thing that's standing in this person's way of becoming that even bigger and bolder self? Um, and I learned that lesson in theatre. It was like really watching this actor. What do they need to hear right now that will help them to unleash that next thing? And when you're able to do that, then the thing will be the whole production or the school or the class or the child will become bigger and bolder than you ever imagined. How long were you in theatre and then how did that lead you into education? So about four or five years in the end. So I did a sort of a year, I need to follow, so I went straight from Oxford to America. So I worked in some theatres in America um, for about a year and a half. And then I came back to London and I worked there for about a year and a half, two years. And then I got this project in Kenya. It was a year-long theatre project, which took me out to Kenya. It was a really amazing piece of theatre that, you know, from the beginning we got to design it and I hired Kenyan writers and all of those things um, to run this year-long project. And then at the end of that, I was asked if I wanted to run a theatre in Kenya. And so, and by then I'd slightly fallen in love with Kenya, actually. There were amazing things about it. And so I stayed and ran a theatre there for a couple of years. And whilst I was doing that, to make money because there is no money in theatre in any country but certainly not in Kenya um I started working with the international schools sort of training their teachers creating drama programs for them and they came at, at the end of that two years I had I really hadn't had a day off I maybe had one Sunday off a year and I was absolutely burnt out and I remember sitting on the grass outside this theatre close to rocking you know <laughs> one of those moments and I just thought I can't I can't don't think I can do this anymore and I and I, it was like a sort of snap and that passion for theatre just stopped. And so I was like, well, what do I want to do? 
and my whole family are teachers and I think I'd always known that that's where I would go um and you're, so you're the daughter and, and granddaughter I am teachers, so my mother you? was a primary school teacher both my aunts are primary school heads and my grandmother was the head of a girls school so it has got a kind of it's legacy <laughs> it is a slightly legacy problem um so yeah I approached one of the the top international school and said you haven't got a psychology department I've got a psychology degree and they were up for it and so that's that's how I made that move are you teaching psychology or, or theatre at ladies college I'm not at the moment the actual thing that I want to do um is I'm going to do some debating so the recent passion actually uh for probably the last eight to ten years the thing I've become very passionate about is um is debating British parliamentary debating I think it's um as a teacher I found it to be one of the most powerful mechanisms because uh, the way that this type of debating works they don't get the motion until 15 minutes before they debate and uh, I can't help them in that 15 minutes and so all you can do is teach children to think and then they have to learn that they can think for themselves and so for me that has been one of the great things I've spent the last 10 years doing and it's something I'd like to do at ladies so in September I'll be starting doing that. So Watford to Texas Mm-hmm. to St Albans and Oxford and Kenya. Yeah. And so what attracted you to Guernsey and to Ladies College? Yeah, so it was so I think about 2 years ago I started to think that I wanted to pursue a headship. And so when Ladies came up I applied, but of course it was in it was in uh lockdown really. So the first two rounds I did online and we'd all expected for me to come out to Guernsey for the final round. And then the, the sort of the real lockdown happened and I couldn't. And so poor governors. So both they and I had to sort of take a, a jump into the dark. Um, and in improv, I do a lot, of, in the last few years I've done quite a lot of comedy improv when I was in Birmingham. And there's a really great saying in improv, which is uh, when you say no to something, you're rewarded with safety. And when you say yes, you're rewarded with adventure. And I just felt, both my husband and I felt we had adventure in us. And so we said yes. Um, and I do remember the moment we f- that summer we flew over and there was a moment I have to be honest where we both saw the size of Guernsey as we were flying in I thought oh my goodness <laughs> it's, it's quite small but when you land it's not and I think oh, we haven't had any doubts about that I think um, we've loved it um, it's yeah it's felt very comfortable and authentic and beautiful um, so yeah so that's actually been been a great adventure it's been and I suppose still is a period of change for Ladies College in in terms of the its role in education in Guernsey generally. Um, at one time, it had special placeholders which guaranteed mm. it as twenty three pupils every year. Um, Elizabeth College is now taking girls, so the whole kind of landscape has mm. changed for Ladies College. In terms of your relationship with the other grant aided colleges, Elizabeth mm. and Blancheland. Do you now think that you you are much more competing for pupils than ever would have been the case previously? I mean, I don't know. I think that um, I think each of those three colleges offers something quite unique, um, and I think that that is valuable to Guernsey. I think you know, and and it's valuable to parents to have that choice. Obviously, I think girls should go to ladies' college. Obviously, I think that. Um, but I do, you know, I do recognise that people have different values and different thoughts about those things. Um, so I, I don't know if competition is the right word. You know, I, I've been talking to Jenny today. I, you know, I actually find it again. It's that collaboration thing. I think we find there's a lot that's quite helpful in our partnership, and we do work together as the three colleges, particularly as the three principals, because there are shared challenges and shared. Um, experiences as principals that I think we find that collegiate nature quite helpful um but yeah I I recognize the landscape is changing 
but I think that almost that's kind of clarified what makes each college unique and valuable and I think that's probably only to the good. What do you think it is that, that is distinctive about Ladies College? The most obvious thing that everybody will think of, we've t- spoken about, it's a girls only yeah. school, but in terms of what it's offering its pupils, yes. what makes it really distinctive, do you think? I mean, distinctive is hard because it's making a comparison to other schools and I wouldn't, I would, you know, I've not even visited Elizabeth College of Blanchard, so I'm definitely not going to say that we're unique in what we do, but I would say that um, what I think, yeah, obviously the girls thing, but I think it is more than that. It is, even if the girls things put aside, this is a really great school and I think what makes it great is I think you have incredible relationships between staff and students the staff talk about that the students talk about that um I had a member of staff just leave actually who'd been doing a maternity cover and he um had been I won't name the schools but he'd been very senior in a lot of very big schools uh, and he said this was the most um I don't know what the word he used, but the best staff room he did ever, ever worked in. It is a really fantastic group of teachers um, and a really fantastic community of people, the, the parents and the pupils. So I think that's the thing. I do think that we are quite innovative and forward thinking. I do think that we are, you know, we are thinking about our tech. We're thinking about those computer skills. The DT, I bet there's more children that do DT at ladies than like a number of co-educational schools combined. Girls schools, you know, when you put girls together, like those girls are taking those subjects they are thinking about the future. They are the, so. I think there's loads of things that make it great. Um, I think our job will be to be clarify that in the next year or two as we as we move forward. But but I think that it's a thriving school. It's a school where every pupil is really well developed. There are amazing relationships between teachers and pupils, and I think it is forward thinking. It is innovative. It is a really dynamic place. Do you think you, one of your tasks is is to do more to communicate that and promote? the distinctiveness and the offer at Ladies College? I absolutely do. I think, you know, one of the things, you know, we, I don't want to bring gender into it, but I think we are encouraged as women to sort of smile sweetly and just do our job as well as we possibly can. And and um, and maybe <laughs> that's not my skill is to smile sweetly and stay quiet. Um, so I think, yes, I think my job is to, to make the voice louder. And I think, you know, you, went, you asked the question earlier about, you know, how difficult is it to come into a great school? I suppose one of the reasons it doesn't feel difficult is I can see where I can add value. And part of where I can add value is just literally sharing what a gem of a school this is. In terms of sustainability, do you, do you have any concerns? Because you are now uh, unique in being um, a single sex school. Yeah. And this is, in population terms, a relatively small island. Um, so I don't have a handle on how many um, girls you need to be viable, but do you have any concerns at all about sustainability and, and viability and whether in the end a business decision may be forced to have to um, give up the, the girls-only character of the school? I definitely think that there is a, a place for girls' education. I'm not worried about that as a business decision. I think that, you know, there will be parents who choose co-ed because they have strong feelings about it, but the evidence is on my side <laughs> and I think and it's a brilliant school and I think that um so no and I think that for Guernsey almost that makes it something that Guernsey should protect and, and maintain and I think there are parents that want it I hear from them all the time you know parents tell me that that is a big factor for them um and I and I know the governors are really committed to it too it's something that we see as really uh, central to who we are and as central to our role in Guernsey you know that this is the thing that we offer um, to the young women of Guernsey and, and I want us to keep offering it and I think that there are parents that want that too. 
Um, finally, Danielle, I want to touch on curriculum because you uh, played a very key role in, in making curriculum changes at your last school. Um, there's this debate nationally or internationally about skills and knowledge, and I, mm. you refer to that in some of the literature uh, I read from your last school. Can you share your views with us about that? Yes, you're going to find my views on this about as strong as my views on girls' education. So, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think, you know... I, we are entering the fourth industrial revolution. When I started talking about this five years ago, that term was maybe not easily accepted. But now it's like on the front page of the, you know, the World uh, Economic Forum, it's recognised by the UK government. This is happening. And yet the system of education that we provide is the same that we provide in the Victorian era. You know, we separate knowledge into silos, we call subjects. Teachers are the holders of that knowledge and they pass that knowledge on to children. And then, and this is really quite weird if you actually think about it, we rank our children on their ability to reproduce that knowledge and examination conditions. And that ranking then determines what they do in life. It's a weird system anyway, but when you look at it in the context of the kinds of demands we're about to meet, it doesn't feel adequate. And when you look at the kind of research, and I spent, as you said, in my last school, I did quite a lot of work, and I spent about six months properly researching what the potential future looked like. Um, and you see two major areas, um, well, th three, but I won't talk about. So there's the cultural piece about how, and I think we talk a lot about that, about how social media is, first of all, changing the way that young people interact, and I could speak endlessly of that, um, but also how I think it's increasingly difficult to separate truth from noise, which is something you must know as a journalist, that that's a a massive democratic pressure um, because I would say that societies are constructed on a shared agreement of how we determine truth and so when you fray that you fray everything so there's that piece there's a significant rise in unemployment that all of these organizations anticipate you know from 15 to 45 percent you get different you know places like Harvard and Oxford Deloitte these people are, are speculating and then you have the industries that are going to be hit and those are kind of areas that can be automated um, so I think about Uber and how that in a year that algorithm you know destroys 30,000 global taxi companies and all of that money is centralised into California. You know, so you have that, but particularly for schools like mine, you have knowledge-based industries as well. So for a number of generations, parents have felt that if they can invest and children have felt if they can learn knowledge, then they'll be able to get a secure career as a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant or an actuary or scientist. But the reality is that the way that this technology works is it will very quickly be able to aggregate like tens of thousands of pieces of information and predict outcomes in a way that the human brain just can't. And so that is really going to hit on the industries that people like mine are interested in. So you have that future and at the same time you have an education system that just isn't thinking about that. There's just no serious conversation about it. And so yes, I do think there's a conversation about skills versus knowledge. I don't think that that... That distinction actually isn't helpful because in order to make the kinds of um, links you need, um, you need working knowledge. Like you have to have that knowledge base in order to make to be problem solving, to be critical thinking. You have to have that working memory and knowledge. But we really need to be honest about how humans are going to interact with that technology and where we see the skill needs. And then we need to work backwards very quickly because the young people that have just entered my year seven are going to graduate in 2030, 2031. And they need the skills now. I have to teach them now. And so we need to be at the front rather than the back. And that's really hard because teachers often and are educators, we learned a particular way. and We like that way. That's why we became teachers and we've been teaching that way. And so it is really hard to get that change. So this is big change. 
not necessarily radical if it's responding to a, a, a need in, in society, but it's yeah. big change nevertheless. It is. As the head teacher of a relatively small, yes, um, or albeit successful school, how, how do you go about that? Yeah, and I think you know, I, as you said, I did some work at my old school on this, and I think there is a point at which um, I'm quite a pragmatic. I'm both an idealist and a pragmatist in some ways. Like I have big vision, but then I want to think about how it's practically going to apply. And I think what you have to think about first of all, you know, you can't have total radical change because the hoops that our young people have to jump through are still there. They still need the GCSE and A-level results. They still need to go to the degree because most organisations still use that as an indicator of who they're going to hire. So you have to keep running that system. The question then is, what's the best we can do in addition to that? And that, and we have to think about that in the context of each school. What are these pupils wanting? What are these? What does this community need? Where are they see? What What are the skills for this particular group that we're going to need? And how do we think about equipping them? Um, now, I'm not, you know, Ladies College has already started this conversation. You know, they've already invested in future ready skills. They are already like committing to being a Microsoft showcase school. They are already thinking ahead. But I think we recognise on the senior leadership team when we started the conversation that we're at the beginning. You know, we have made the first steps, but we've just opened the door. And that is now that we have, unfortunately, change is going to continue apace and we have a moral and strategic responsibility to keep doing that too. Well, it's an exciting time to be in education and we're very grateful for your time. So thank you very much, Danielle Harford-Fox. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Bailiwick Express podcast. The title track was Shift My Weight by Luno. If you enjoyed it, please like, subscribe and share. Remember, you can always hit bailiwickexpress.com to stay right up to date with what's happening in the Bailiwick. You can find us online, on social, on email and on internet radio. There'll be more from me, Matt Fallais and all the Bailiwick team next week.